Uh, greetings, dear listeners. This is another uh, episode. I don't know if it'll be exciting. It may be uh, depressing. We'll have to see. Uh, but a hopefully compelling episode of the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg. And hold on one second. I must briefly interject to say that this episode of the Remnant is brought to you by the Susan B. Anthony List. We'll be hearing about them later. Now back to whatever Jonah was saying. We have uh, in the studio my uh, friend and AEI colleague, uh, Sally Sattel. Hi, Sally. Hi, Jonah. So, Sally, is, you are a psychiatrist and an yeah. MD. That means I can write prescriptions. <laughs> that's that's why very friends. important to say. <laughs> and uh, you're a, a lecturer at Yale, on the faculty at Yale. You do something at Yale? <laughs> yes, I. Uh... I mean, I do something at Yale, but I don't. It's nothing legal or anything, so. Yeah, but it's um, – I'm there once or twice a year. It, uh-huh. it, it's – I wish I could be there more, but, uh, and, and, you know, give some lectures. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, do you still practice as like a practicing – Yes. Know, like patients and stuff like that? Yep. I work in a methadone clinic here in, in D.C., which is near George Washington University. It's kind of interesting. It's a completely different environment than the one I worked in that was uh, in the Northeast. Uh-huh. Is much more um, much more frontier like down there, but yeah. but, he, but here it's uh, it's well maintained, which makes a big difference to the community. Yeah, but I do that. Um, and so we wanted to have you on. We do occasionally these deep dives on um, on um, specific public policy things. We we've wanted to do an opioid epidemic thing for a long time, and that's something you've been working on quite a bit. You moved off into. I don't mean to be denigrating anybody, but sort of opioid country to study it close up yeah. for a little while. Um, um, why don't we start at the beginning and just, it, you know, where does it come from? Where do, how, did we, how did this thing sneak up on us the way it did? Well, it depends. You think you have to make a distinction between urban centers and, and uh, rural. Right. Um, I'm living, as you mentioned, for the year in a, uh, in the Appalachian Rust Belt, which is what Limestone calls it. So it's a tri-state area in the eastern, uh, southern, southeastern Ohio, which borders on Ashland, Kentucky, and Huntington, West Virginia. And mm-hmm. Huntington is that town that came to highly unwanted attention uh, the summer of 2016, where 28 people overdosed in one afternoon. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, thank goodness 26 of them lived, uh-huh. and the two who died were using a loan. Uh, so no one could call the EMTs. But um, So that's where I am. Very different than my methadone clinic here. I might, I might describe that to you. Mm. It's, uh, as I mentioned, it's near GW. It, the average age of the person in our clinic is 57. In Appalachia? No, here. Here, okay. Methadone Clinic, yeah. 57. Some started injecting in the Carter administration. Uh-huh. They're old school addicts. Many of them started injecting. Uh-huh. Pills, or, pills were not an issue. Pills yeah. were not in the picture at all. They're in the picture to the extent that over, over where my old apartment is in Chinatown, uh-huh. if someone's selling pills, people will buy them. But this wasn't an opioid story. Excuse me. This wasn't an Oxycontin story. Uh-huh. However, the death rate in Washington, D.C. is higher than many places in, in Appalachia. That's due to fentanyl primarily. Uh-huh. And fentanyl became available here in a significant way in around 2014. And fentanyl is a synthetic opioid mostly made in China and somewhat in Mexico but shipped up through Mexico. And the dark web and, and the dark through web. through the mail system. And it was originally like a 
an anesthetic yeah. kind of drug. It's a right? fine drug. And if yeah. you went into the hospital and had a um, an operation, uh, when you woke up, you'd probably find a, a, an apparatus next to you with a pump. Uh-huh. And that would be fentanyl, but it would be in micrograms and highly regulated, of course. And um, But as you say, this is shipped mainly from uh, China and up through Mexico or directly here and some down through through Canada. It's 50 times as potent as heroin, and which makes it 100 times as potent as morphine. And if you, if you don't have a tolerance to, to opioids, the chances of overdosing are pretty damn high. So, I mean, I, I want to get back to the origin stuff of this mm, and the pill yeah. mills and all that, but... The thing about fentanyl is it just that it's because is it just that it's a it's a multiplier effect and it's cheap that if you use it in the right amount you get the same high as you would from heroin but oh yeah it's very potent so you need less of it that's a great boon to people who are trafficking right volume is so much smaller and uh, yeah that's why but if it's not stepped on properly that's how you get the overdoses I mean. Uh, well, you could call it stepped on, I guess. I mean, that usually, I usually think of that in terms of, um, well, this is a contaminant. You could call fentanyl a contaminant, but often what people put into heroin is nothing you can get high on, just Mm. stuff to take up volume and looks like it. I mean, this is an opioid, but it is cheaper and it is, uh, as as we said, um, such tiny volumes, it makes it easier to spread around. And it's really changed the equation on why there's so much energy behind the harm reduction. We can get to that uh, efforts because, you know, the truth is, and most people I don't realize this, is that the average addiction goes away over time. I'm not I'm not recommending anyone wait till that happens. Please come for treatment. Right. But most people, frankly, do uh, quit on their own. When you say most, is there like a general ballpark number on that? Um, over 50 percent. So over 50 percent of the people get addicted to opioids? To anything, yeah. Get over it on their own? Yeah. But actually, there's a, an excellent paper by John F. F. Uh, Kelly at, at, at Harvard's uh, – I forgot the name of his institute, but we can uh-huh. put that in your yeah. in your notes. And it, and it, it shows that's the case, uh, that the, that – that's what's called natural remission is uh, is more common than people think. But the folks who are at most risk are those who have a concurrent either formal psychiatric problem or I would say an existential psychiatric problem, yeah. just a general and we know the phrase now, well, despair, is, despair of living. Yeah. So as you wrote, you have a great piece. It's sort of like a opioid crisis 101 or opioid crisis for – I wouldn't say for dummies, but Beginners. for the general reader um, in the national in national affairs from like a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. We'll put it in the show notes. And one of the points you make, which I think is a good one, is that we had an opioid crisis for a very long time in inner cities. But it was seen differently, partly because of the patina of race, partly because of the concentration of media in the major cities mm-hmm. where it is. And so it played differently as a cultural issue and all the rest. And the opioid crisis plays out differently because it's mostly rural, mostly white kind of older how did that get started how much how much how much scorn or blame or uh, condemnation do you think we should have for the pharmaceutical companies and how they and their role in all of this i, I think we should definitely have some and we can yeah. talk a little bit more about that but i think that it is a complete folly to put the, the blame solely on them there are a lot of players uh the dea the distributors who uh there's an excellent report just out from the uh oversight uh subcommittee on the house 
Energy and Commerce, that it's oh, 380 pages. It's exhaustive, which really uh-huh. shows where the flaws were in the DEA, the DEA and distributor level. Um, but you're right. We started off making this contrast between the urban situation where this had been going on for a very long right. time. But the fentanyl changed the equation in terms of overdose deaths. And uh, But in, in uh, this – where I'm working now, you know, opioids were – prescribed at high doses mm-hmm. for, for frankly, for decades, mainly because so many of the people there worked in, had jobs that were backbreaking. Right. And not only were they in pain because of that, then they, they wouldn't get paid if they didn't go to work. So right. they needed to be medicated to be a worker in addition to having some relief. And there was this big, I don't want to call it a craze because I think it was probably a lot of merit to it, but there was this big thing about chronic pain in America being an under-dealt-with problem. Yes. I don't think that figured out, frankly, very much in, mm-hmm. in, the, in Appalachia, for example. Right. I think that was much more important in the, in the medical centers, the, especially the you know, a- academic um, medical centers and in the more suburban and urban areas. And that's true. That pain – and there was a real convergence there between OxyContin's appearance in 1996, was approved by the FDA in 95, and then 96, it, it was available. And that was just at a point where where a movement, which which started gaining momentum in the 80s and a much-needed movement to redress the undertreatment of pain, started really getting traction in the early 90s. So when you look at many graphs that – and I'm sure people are familiar with them, but they, they show the um, – they show the upsweep in – Let the listener know she just held up a graph for me. <laughs> that they, they always start in 1999, but actually they start in around 1992. And that's where you start to see the – that's where you start to see the increase in prescription opioids. That yeah. predated uh, OxyContin and that was driven, I think, by this cor- effort to correct under yeah. treatment of pain. And uh, and then OxyContin came along. It's important because it's very potent. It has a lot of oxycodone in it, and right. that's the name, oxy for oxycodone, which is a semi-synthetic opioid, and contin meaning continuous, that it was a slow release, uh, optimally 12 hours, meaning you only had to use it twice a day, whereas Percocet is a four- to six-hour dosing. Right. So when you have a steady blood level, uh, you're much less likely to get minor withdrawals throughout the day and uh, a, a better coverage of, of, of pain. Also, uh, pure oxycodone doesn't have the Tylenol and um, or acetaminophen and the aspirin that Percocet, that mm-hmm. Vicodin, Percocet um have and that's important because taking a lot of opioid that's that's mixed with Tylenol is terrible for your liver right. not not in the short term but uh, for years on end and the aspirin of course can lead to significant gastric bleeding so to have a medication come along that's high dose oxycodone uh, that slow release was it was uh, marketed as being uh, very effective for non-cancer chronic pain. And while in Appalachia, there was a tradition of treating non-cancer chronic pain, that wasn't as as common in, mm-hmm. in other places. So there, the drug reps really did have more work to do. And, and of course, uh, it's, it's, there's been a lot of attention placed on, they may have under, probably, probably under 
represented the degree to which these medications can, can be addictive. Of course, they're Schedule two, Right. So, of course, they're addictive. And then when you chop them up and, and uh, inject them or inhale them, the addictive potential goes up tremendously. Patients weren't doing that. Right. Non-patients were doing that. But back, back to OxyContin. So that came along, and I think it really upset the equilibrium in these small towns because there was a lot of opioid prescribing before then. But these medications were much stronger. And again, when they're, when they were chopped up and, and used either the root of I, IV root or snorting really, really right, caused a clarify, lot of addiction. So the Oxycontin, it's a time release thing, but you can if circumvent you smash it, right? If you cir- circumvent it by just getting rid of sort of the M&M shell of it and, and then it just becomes pure, basically opioid and you get a much more mm-hmm. powerful dose instantaneously. Right. Either inject it, melt it and inject it or, or snort it or whatever, Right. right. Or chew it, right? Some guys just... Yeah, I don't know how people do that. Um, but yes. And um, so that that really ups- upset the equilibrium. So let's say that if, you, if we were looking at a graph, we'd see a <laughs> rising overdose rate from, well, as I said, from 92 up. But it did, it did there was an inflection point in 19, around the late 90s. I think that was fairly due to, to Oxy, OxyContin. And also people would drink with it and yeah. often use benzodiazepines or Valium-type drugs with it. And most overdoses have uh, more than one on toxicology exam, have more than one substance. Is that right? And the, yeah. And together, they're much more deadly than either alone. There's a synergistic effect. Yeah. With, uh, so, I mean, uh, so part of it, just so I understand, it was the, the epidemic had l- – obviously, you can never be – categorical about any of this. There are all these varying factors, right? But so part of it was not so much the people who were lawfully prescribed these drugs, but that because these drugs were being so uh, generously prescribed, it actually created a market because there were just extra pills that people could steal or sell their extras or get an extra prescription and, and, and sell that. And it created – the supply created – a market outside of the proper uses for it. Right. And again, in areas that I'm working in, an underground economy in pills, it was always an underground economy in pills. So that wasn't a new development either. But um, but But then pill mills, definitely. And then pill mills. So you're right. Doctors overprescribed. No question about that. Doctors should never have prescribed OxyContin in general for anything other than its its indication. Now, some debate it has any indication at all. I believe it does. Sure. But shouldn't have prescribed that medication for anything resembling acute pain. Mm-hmm. So after you broke your ankle or a tooth removal, uh, wisdom tooth, you should have never, no one should ever get OxyContin, let alone a whole bottle worth. Right. And you're right. People, people like, you know. So people, what should they get it for then? If they shouldn't get it for. It is for chronic pain. Oh, oh, for example, the patients I know who've been on it for, for years and have found it to be very helpful. People with horrific migraine. Now, I'm not saying this today. These are the first line medications sure. at all. But for frequent and incapacitating migraines, for uh, inflammatory conditions, mm-hmm. for musculoskeletal problems, neurological pain. Um, again, we we know a lot more about sure. uh, other forms of pain treatment, and it could well be that many of the folks who've been on the, the, they're called legacy patients, they've been on high doses. I mean, Mm -hmm. doses that would make you blanch, but figure in some tolerance that's been built up, plus the fact their pain is, you know, think of your worst headache multiplied by a thousand every day of your life. It's, it's, 
the kind of pain that makes you want to kill yourself. Yeah. And they've been doing well. They've been working. In fact, I was uh, my first uh, this first came home to me in uh, the summer of 2016 when a friend of a friend referred a doctor to me, another doctor, a surgeon in near Stanford who had practiced for 35 years on 40 milligrams of methadone. And you can prescribe methadone Mm -hmm. out of a doctor's office for pain. If it's prescribed for addiction, it has to be in a a clinic. And she was maintained on that for, for a condition called interstitial cystitis, which is a bladder inflammation that is excruciating. Took them a few years. She got it, at, developed it at 27, took them a few years to get the dose right. And she went on to be an orthopedic surgeon, very successful. And then the month before she contacted me, her doctor walks in and said, I'm taking you off this. You can't be on it. The government says you can't be on opioids anymore. That is not true, but that's how many doctors, unfortunately, are hearing yeah. this. Luckily, we found her someone else. She's okay. But but there are many, many people like that, and they are scared for their lives because so are doctors, unfortunately. They yeah. think the DEA is going to kick in their door. None of that's true. And if I can actually put in a little plug for something I'm doing with some colleagues, we, we should have our um, press release next, next uh, week. We've um, gotten over 300 doctors to sign an uh, open letter to the CDC asking them to merely clarify that their 2016 guidelines and, you know, their guidelines on chronic opioid prescribing were fine. I mean, some doctors might disagree with me. In general, a lot of us think they were fine. They were fairly cautious. But many doctors, some health systems have read this to mean no one should be on these drugs or they should be tapered to 90 um, morphine milligram equivalents. That's that's how you express um these medications can all be reduced to morphine milligram equivalents of 90, which is would be a lot for us. But again, if you're somewhat tolerant, been off for a long time and on high doses before, that's that's not enough. Mm-hmm. And all we wanted was for the CDC to simply clarify that is not what their guidelines said, even though so many have misinterpreted them. So we're going to release that. We'll see what happens. But it's, um, you know, it's a real unintended consequence of a very legitimate effort for doctors to curtail their prescribing. And in that um, activity of doctors uh, curtailing their prescribing, I would say, I'd say around 2010, doctors were really getting the message that yeah. we've been way too profligate with these drugs, both in terms of quantity and in terms of threshold for, for prescribing. But at that time, that really was kind of a perfect storm because the pill mills were, the DEA was getting very aggressive with the pill mills around 2010. That was the same year that OxyContin, some some say, and I agree with them, was belatedly reformulated so that you could no longer crush it. Hmm. And also the PDMPs, um, prescription drug monitoring programs, were getting online uh, very, very forcefully in, in, in each state. And a PDMP is something that as a physician, even as, as a pharmacist, you can go to, I can put in Jonah Goldberg and see, hmm, he already visited Dr. X this morning right. and got a prescription. But my recollection is the AMA and a lot of state-level AMA-type organizations were very much against that. Am I wrong about that? Wasn't there a pushback against – or maybe it's a pushback against a national database like that where you know what prescription drugs people are on? I have to admit, I'm not. I, you may be right. I, I don't. I, 
I'm just if you haven't heard about it, then yeah. maybe I'm. I, odds are I'm the one who's wrong. <laughs> but um, uh, the only state that has was the last to have one, I think, is Missouri, and uh, I don't know if there's this completely online. But what we what would help tremendously is if there were if they were all connected across states, because if yeah. you live on a border, you can just get. So anyway, all this happened at once. These four dynamics: the reformulation of the pill, the pill mills being cut down and they were they were nefarious yeah. i mean people would take the so-called oxycontin express which yeah. was a plane down to hollywood california load up sometimes they'd accept medicaid california or florida florida excuse me okay, okay. sometimes they would uh you know they would oh sometimes these clinics clinics you can't see the air quotes but yeah. these pain clinics uh would take medicaid often it was cash but they, you would walk on, walk out with a bottle that would re, that you'd pay two fifty for, and you could sell for seven thousand dollars at a dollar a milligram. And so the again, the underground economy I call the oxy economy really took off. And uh, but then, so that was starting to be shuttered. Doctors were becoming more aware, and that was a real entree for heroin. You know, and all the drugs are still percolating, but that that was a really created an opening for heroin. To, right. To so you in. pull the pills back, yeah. then people need to find new opiates, and so actually they go back to the classic old one, which is heroin, right? Yeah. So that uh, so if you look at a, again this this graph that will be posted, you can see a rise starting in around 2010, and then fentanyl came in in around 2014, and and when you look at the the increase in overdose deaths, it just is as it's just like a steepest ski slope you can imagine yeah. since fentanyl came along. So does anyone? By, is there a cons- how to put this? Is there a consumer market for fentanyl, or is this a middleman dealer phenomenon? Right? I mean, no one no, does anyone say oh, I'm going to go out and score me some fentanyl because it's such such a small thing, or is it something that is put into you know? Yeah, it's always put in. Right, so it's cut into something. It's cut else. into something, but there are and most patients, most people. Don't want it. In fact, that that's one of the reasons we're seeing more methamphetamine uh, is to not even uh, risk fentanyl in your heroin. However, now fentanyl is also being um, added to methamphetamine. Uh, We can talk about that in a minute. But it is true that some patients who've become very tolerant to to heroin want higher concentrations of fentanyl and seek it out. And in places like Vancouver, believe it or not, Estonia... (laughs) Hmm. And probably some places in, near San Francisco, I believe the concentrate the the percentage of of the bag that you get will be predominantly fentanyl. Wow! So is it sort of like epidemiology with a disease? Like if you don't, if a certain amount of people don't get inoculated, then you know measles will spread. If you get a certain critical mass of opioid addicts from the pills that you basically are guaranteeing a long-time pipeline for, for heroin addiction or some sort of addiction, right? Yeah, you'll get people who, who fall off. In other words, uh, they developed... Sure. Well, sadly, because they die, that's one reason, but also because some people draw the line in various places. And pills are still pills. They're still legal, even if you've obtained them illegally. At least you know they're pure. Right. And they're good quality. Yeah. Al- although, I should add, now, if you're buying a, a pill on the street that says OC, which is Oxycontin, or even Xanax, can be made in a pill press, that's fentanyl. 
So people buy pills that are pressed pressed fentanyl. So you're using, let's say you're swallowing a lot of OxyContin. That's one route of administration. Frankly, if that's the only way you're abusing it, you're probably unlikely to move to, to heroin. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that kind of a progression tends to capture people who've already started injecting and uh, their their pills yeah. or the pills they've purchased and or, or gotten from their grandmother. I mean, that's you have old people with cancer in, in hospices. I mean, I'm, you probably know this, but um, uh, that's where people raid dumpsters outside of hospices uh, when there's a when there's an obituary in a small town paper. Um, they've, some people have stopped putting in obituaries because then that's a signal that some older person died here oh and was probably on these drugs. Uh, realtors tell people to take everything out of your uh, medicine chest if people are going to be going through your house. So you know, it's pretty it's pretty pernicious. So yes, though the short answer is there's a subgroup of people who've already been shooting. Now some of them say even some of those folks will say, oh, heroin is a bridge too far because it still has, of course, such a a uh, bad reputation, and it's not – you can't guarantee the purity. But many will go on and and then fentanyl, and that makes it the most – a very dangerous proposition. I still have a hard time getting my head around the fentanyl part about it, of, of all this, because when you read about how dangerous it is – I mean, I understand it's cheap and all that, but like as a kid of the 1970s and 80s, you would hear lots and lots of stories about – stories. I never knew anybody who actually suffered from this – of buying a joint or a dime bag of pot that was laced with PCP and someone went crazy and killed people. It always felt very urban legendy to me because like why would you use a more expensive product to, you know, to put into weed when you're never going to get that customer back? And it kind of feels like there are all these Hollywood movies where you have one corporate titan after another who think it's a great business plan to kill their customers in some way. What is the incentive structure for a dealer to use fentanyl if they – I mean if – to sell a pill, if you say say a pill that's been sort of under false pretenses that's supposed to be Oxycontin and turns out to be fentanyl, isn't it likely that you're going to kill that customer if you sell them that or no? I mean – Well, here I'm almost uh, just working on logic. In uh other words, obviously not because – Right. No, fair. But the way way it's Um, covered is – I think – true. I think those pills are mainly being purchased by – I mean there's horrific stories uh, clearly we know and especially – Poor kids. We have a donor that we both know yeah. um, who's – and I've heard this story so many times. A young person who's who got over the worst of it, then went to a party and, of course, they still think, now I can handle it. And it wasn't just a, a Valium someone gave him. It was this and yeah. he died. But most people who take them already have a – um, tolerance. And in fact, that's, that is one of the uh, reasons why it's ironic that fentanyl, uh, is causing some people to, to switch from street opioids to methamphetamine to avoid the contamination, whereas others have now built up such a tolerance to any kind of opioid. That's another reason why they're switching. Not because they're afraid of dying, but because they can't get high anymore yeah. off of it. And, uh, so, Clearly, it's 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 working. Okay, so this seems like a good place to stop and talk about this week's sponsor. Uh, Jonah is not in a capacity to record an advertisement, so you're stuck with me again. But this is a sponsor that does not, at least an ad that does not lend itself to jocularity, so I shall not attempt to force 
jocularity where none is needed. Um, you can now, and this this week's sponsor is the Susan B. Anthony List, as mentioned earlier. And guess what? You can now reserve your spot to join with Ambassador Nikki Haley at the country's premier event for pro-life Americans. On June 3rd in Washington, D.C., Ambassador Haley will serve as the keynote speaker for the 12th annual Campaign for Life Gala. The event is hosted by the Susan B. Anthony List, which is America's leading grassroots organization working to build a culture of life in our country and pass laws protecting babies in the womb. Uh, with Ambassador Haley sure to deliver a powerful keynote address, this year's gala will be one to remember, and you will walk out inspired by the opportunity we have in front of us to pass laws that save lives. So please make your plans for a celebratory evening, a fellowship, a party with a purpose, and a call to action for all of us to champion the God-given rights of unborn children. Go online to sbalist.org slash remnant. That's sbalist.org slash remnant to RSVP and purchase your tickets or even host a table for the 12th annual Campaign for Life gala. And now the only the only modicum of jocularity I'll introduce here is that um, a wild debate may ensue over the, my pronunciation of the word spelled G-A-L-A. Um, that's all. But this advertiser is more important than my jokes, such as they are. So, again, sbalist.org slash remnant, and now let's get back to the episode. Um, all right, so what the hell should we do about it? Well, you know, the old, the old dichotomy still makes a lot of sense to me, the demand reduction, supply reduction. And what's different in this drug crisis is that the supply reduction is just n- – not limited to the illicit drugs. Mm-hmm. It's also obviously involves d- doctors. And I think we're doing a pretty good job. Probably there's more to go with doctors. They're, they're so sensitized. Now they're sensi- oversensitized, as we discussed before with that poor woman who called me and mm-hmm. where some people are being taken off their medications. But but you make a distinction between acute prescribe, prescribing for acute pain and chronic pain. And I think doctors are much more sensitized. Some states even have rules where the first prescription can't be more than, I think, three days is way too restrictive, but seven days is an average. And hospital centers are, and, and insurance companies, they're and the VA especially, they're very attuned to watching this now and also trying to build up alternatives to all opioids in terms of pain treatment. And now, there's sometimes if you feel that the patient may be at greater risk than normal, you could give them uh, naloxone to take home. Mm-hmm. That's the overdose, Narcan, right. the overdose reversal. So from the doctor standpoint, I, I, we're definitely making progress. Prescriptions uh, or the volume of prescriptions is down 20 percent since 2011. Some say it should go back to 1999. I'm, I, it's an interesting question. How low should they go? Because mm-hmm. some have said, well, wait a minute. You were still under-prescribing to some extent back then. Right. But still, it should probably go lower. And then you have the pill mills. You have the distributors. You have you have that. And they are – we just interviewed actually Representative Walden today and on the Energy uh, House Energy and Commerce Committee. And they're – they're grilling the the DEA yeah. on on what they're doing. I mean, we're talking here about situations where a you know a small town with ten people and an arthritic dog you know are sent six trillion pills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where does that come from? Well, 
they, they issued an excellent report, mm-hmm. and um, it really shows you where all the um, the problems are. And mu- much of the diversion was actually at the distributor level. And that makes sense to me because even though if you, you multiply medicine chests, you know, across the country by maybe an average of maybe 30 pills hanging around in any one of them, that's still a lot of pills that mm-hmm. get it slosh around the community and get redistributed. But I still think that you had to dis- redistribute them from distributor, you know, right. be stolen from distributors to really fuel that, that market, especially now that uh, pill mills are But is the market – Suffi- has the market been sufficiently primed that illicit it, that it just creates a great sort of like on the principle that the first taste is free? We've introduced a whole new market of people to the prescription drugs. Pull back the prescription drugs. That's not going to get rid of the opioid addiction. No, and it's already ha- it's right. we've already it's happened. Right. So it's funny when people say when people talk about legalization. I realize that's a you know. It's, a serious debate worthy of an entire discussion, but I, I think we already legalized them. They were called pill mills, and right. it was, a dis- frankly, a disaster. Yeah, so where, where do you just – because, you know, I'm – it's one of the few areas where I get into fights with my National Review colleagues, with my libertarian friends, is that I'm not a I, – I, I'm, I'm, I think we're doing the pot stuff way too quickly. I would have rathered we did it for 10 years in Colorado and see how it went. But pot, I've never considered the same – people – do this false equivalence, I think, between different substances. Mm. And so where just where do you come down on the question of drug legalization writ large? I, I'm more conservative about it. Yeah. I think there is a middle ground, and that middle ground largely resides in the criminal justice system, to be mm-hmm. honest, in terms of diverting people who commit crimes that they otherwise wouldn't have committed to treatment programs. And those treatment programs, if they're done well, and I grant you not all are the kind of quality you'd want to see, um, can be incredibly effective because you have leverage. We know that in treatment programs that people voluntarily come to, one of, one of our biggest problems as clinicians is the dropout rate. It's mm-hmm. so high. Now, some people will say, well, of course they drop out. The treatment programs are judgmental and the cl- clinicians aren't good. Yes, but I've seen great programs and there's just a lot of dropout. And that is the nature of, of addiction. It's the nature and, and specifically it's the nature of ambivalence about giving up your drug. Well, but exp- can you explain that to me a little bit? Because you say there's about a 50 percent Fifty percent of addictions end voluntarily on their own, essentially. Right, but right? the subgroup then there's that subset who 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 don't arrest it on their own, and they're the ones who come into the treatment program. So we're already seeing a much more uh, hardened and 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 often troubled group because they often have other psychiatric problems. So if someone, do you think if someone was on the was in the popular the pool of people who were going to end their addiction on their own? If they had, for whatever reason, been put into drug treatment, do you think they would be much more likely to be successful? Or do you think there is something about the nature of drug treatment that creates a rebellion no. against it? Um, well, for some people probably. But um, no, I think if you think about involvement with a drug, you know, it's anything from, yeah, I tried something at my friend's house and I kind of liked it. Right. Um, but I knew my mom would kill me. That, yeah. So that's the end of it right there. Then the next step could be I liked it. I took, I took a little more. Then I had trouble waking up. I was already late for school. My job started to be threatened. I said, the heck with that. Right. Well, you can see where this goes. And then people who are deterred by less and less and less 
presumably because for many of them, they're in more psychic pain. Mm -hmm. And so it's worth it to them to to have this kind of uh, anesthetization. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not so much that they're necessarily nodded out at home, but in in the short term, many of these medications, Drugs make people feel better, and they're actually more effective yeah. until it so, catches, some of them are just fun catches up with them, while. and and fun. Yeah. Uh, so, and then you've got you know then by the time someone is seriously addicted, you've got two layers of of, of problem. You've you've got what attracted them to using drugs in the first place, and if you want a tutorial on that, just pick up any addiction memoir. Mm-hmm. Clearly, they're written by the subset of addicts who are incredibly eloquent. Right. <laughs> but one of the major themes that come across in that, and there are many, but uh, is self hatred. It's mm-hmm. a highly powerful motivator to to want to uh, use a. Especially opioids, although alcohol, cocaine sure. as well. It's like as a and, form of escapism from yourself, right? Yeah, as a numbing agent. Yeah, yeah. and so there, there's there's that that you've perhaps successfully managed with these these drugs, but then you've got a whole second generation of problems that you've created by losing that job and losing the trust of people in your family and getting HIV or hepatitis C, and. And you can imagine someone would think, why would I give this up? Now Now I've got so much to face, I can't bear it. Right. And they don't even think they're capable of overcoming that. So it's a, it's, it's a pernicious cycle of, of d- despair and, and, and helplessness for many people. And if they rob a – not rob a bank, that's pretty serious. They wouldn't be eligible for a drug court. But if right. they go into you know, 7-Eleven and walk out with too many things that aren't theirs and get arrested and go to a drug court where they're – the judge is highly involved. These are considered therapeutic courts. I mean, yeah. that is formally the name, therapeutic there's courts. A big, there's a big new push for a drug court, right? I mean, a, it, it, but they were first around in – Janet Reno created them in Miami yeah. in 19, 18, 1989. And she mainly did it because it was so much crack yeah. um, crime. She just wanted to keep people out of, out of jail. That was really the main thing. But it – Gradually, right, took on a much more strongly therapeutic veneer, and um, often I hope I hope this is true of most of them. If you complete the program, your charges are dropped, your record is is clean, so that's a significant mm. carrot. But um, but these these drug courts really work on a kind of a behavior one hundred and one schedule. If uh, we get a we test you pretty rigorously um, for compliance, we look at your you know, urine tests and all this, and if there's something wrong, there's an immediate response it's right. swift it's 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 certain but it's not severe and uh, and that's behavior shaping and i personally am was enthusiastic about the idea of this enormous leverage that a judge has and they meet every week with these people they're really devoted to them you have to have mm. a certain personality to be this kind of a yeah. a judge and um and i thought with the medications we have the the methadone mm-hmm. the buprenorphine mm-hmm. uh, also called suboxone and then there's another form which is a blocker called vivitrol but that that those medications plus that kind of incentive structure um would be particularly effective uh, there aren't Fortunately, there just aren't data out on that yet. Uh, we know that it works very well for methamphetamine. Uh, there was a – well, still there's a big drug court in Hawaii that's used um, these sanctions and incentives extremely effectively. And that's all you have because there are no medications for stimulants. I'm skeptical mm-hmm. there – I'm kind of skeptical there ever will be one. It, it's a real challenge to uh, psychopharmacologists because every time you use a little stimulant, you you prime, you prime the reward – 
circuitry yeah. for more. Um, opioids are the opposite. In other words, once you take them, you quell the craving. Mm-hmm. So it's a real challenge. And then there's talk about a uh, cocaine vaccine. Well, I've been talking about that for 20 years, and I'm skeptical there will be any advance. Plus, even if we have one, people just can just turn to another drug. But um, a cocaine vaccine would be what? Something that just made cocaine not work on you? Yeah, it would prevent it from crossing the blood-brain barrier because it would make the molecule bigger. It's uh-huh. it's ingenious immunology. If it works. Well, <laughs> it works. It it put it this way, it you there know, it works in really... some animal models. Okay. So it'll it'll work, but right, whether it works in humans and then you need would need booster shots and this isn't the most reliable population, yeah. but I mean I'm all for continuing to pers- try to per- see, see if we can develop something, but right. it's not the promise, and no drug is ever going to be. I feel very strongly about this, and this was a big misconception that was sold um, when people started paying attention to the opioid epidemic, which is we have MAT, you know, medic- medication assisted therapy, those three medications I was talking about, mm-hmm. more like those two medications, which are opioids themselves methadone and buprenorphine. This is a disease like any other, wrong, but if you believe it is, then a medication should be enough. Right. That medica- those medications, I, obviously, I prescribe them. They're great, but they stabilize people. They prevent withdrawal, and they can suppress craving. And that's huge to break the cycle, but then you've got all this extra other intense work to do on repairing yourself, your networks, one foot in front of the other with good cognitive behavioral therapy that allows you to identify what are so so called triggers you know what kinds of what kinds of situations both environmental and internal in terms of mood states get you craving how can you avoid them how can you deal with the craving once you experience it it takes a lot of motivation to do that it doesn't take much motivation to get better from pneumonia that's a good point. So we recently had uh, our colleague Tim Carney on here talking about his new book, and we're not going to get into the politics stuff per se, but he writes about something that has been a sort of an obsession of mine for for a, a long time now about the importance of social capital, and the, the resources of you mentioned, you mentioned networks, right? The example I often use is people say, you know, you could be homeless tomorrow. And I was like, no, I really couldn't. Right? I just, there are enough people who care about me. you know. And so in the, with the Appalachia or the, 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 the rural opioid epidemic, how much of the spread of it do you think can be attributed to the fact that there is this documented erosion of civil institutions and civil society where churches are weaker, you get all sorts of down downstream problems where civic institutions are no longer binding, where the kind of families that force schools to be good schools move elsewhere. Do you see the opioid epidemic as part of that larger story or not? Oh, very much so. Yeah, I've been listening to um, Tim's book, and I'm I'm gonna by the end of it, I'm gonna try to figure out where on the alienation scale <laughs> the, the town that I'm in, which is called Ironton, Ohio, where it is. Um, it's ten thousand people, so it's small, and and um, you know they're they made iron as uh-huh. Ironton. In fact, the name is a portmanteau of iron by the ton. They were the biggest producer of iron in the in the country in the late eighteen hundreds, and had a very flourishing economy. And um, basically, every war they did real, from sure, yeah, that was a boon. But um, by the late sixties, the first of the 
uh, factories started closing, and that just kept rolling on. And um, by 1980, this particular town was was bankrupt. Actually, there are some green shoots there there now, but it went through a tough time. Still, things are bad. And I remember Tim saying, kind of the first the first thing to go is the economy, and then the then the families unravel and right. and all that. I think has 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 truth to it. So. I actually think of kind of think of addiction in terms of uh, I mean I, I may make this scale um, more or this I, I may turn this into a trichotomy, but right now it's a dichotomy, which is first use of trichotomy on this podcast. There you go. <laughs> in that, when we were talking about those addiction memoirs, yeah. usually those are uh, what I call. Um, we call addictions that are motivated by an effort to, to remedy the self. Uh-huh. And the kinds, what you see more in, frankly, we saw this was true in the inner city for so long, we just never thought about it this way. Yeah. Uh, but um, is more uh, a matter of circumstance. So self versus circumstance. Mm-hmm. And I always, I remember thinking, you know, you give me some kid growing up in a situation where he or she doesn't see much promise where the role models are awful, um, where you know, the education is weak, but, you know, but who's basically you got, got some basic integrity of mm-hmm. personality structure. And I could work with that person, even if they're, use, you know, they're sure. and there could be a really promising future. I would say that that that's something that's easier to deal with than the kind of person who appears to have it all, does have it all, mm-hmm. and and still uses so many drugs. Because there, the repair is so much more internal. Yeah. Uh, now, some people, everyone's different. Some people can come into a methadone clinic or or any treatment setting and really just get righted, as it were, and then they they still have enough social capital, so to speak, to, mm-hmm. to, to basically say, okay, you, you can push them out. I'm kind of okay now. Thanks. I, I needed that. But others just need an entire, it's not even rehabilitation, it's habilitation. I mean, yeah. they need to remake themselves to some extent. And, and identities undergo significant shifts. And it's a very, very big project. So clearly there's overlap between those two. You can certainly have people in terrible circumstances who also have a lot of personal uh, angst that is generated from within, so to speak, as mm-hmm. opposed to just reacting to a, to a, a bleak environment. But, um, but I found that sort of a useful dichotomy. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, Full disclosure, and I think I've talked to you about this before, but you know, my brother had addiction problems and died about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And his upbringing in a social science set, sense, very similar to my upbringing, right? <laughs> um, we were very close in age and very close period. And, but, and I don't want to start dishing on my own family, but you know, he was, he, there's a reason why I, 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 I I love this phrase from Orwell from Politics in the English Language where he says a man can feel himself a failure and take to drink and become all the more of a failure because he drinks, right? There's this catalytic thing where, you know, he looked to have, he looked to have problems and he miraculously enough found them often. And, um, and then he used those problems as excuses to have more problems. And I knew a lot of drug addicts growing up. I mean, I want to say I was surrounded by them or anything like that, but, you know, the high school I went to was sort of, I used to joke it was Manhattan 90210. It was very mm-hmm. sort of perfectly of that Gen X milieu of like less than zero kind of stuff. There's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And, I, and so there were a lot of kids with 
good social capital and certainly really much better financial capital than anything that the Goldbergs had. And But you could just see how for some people it was this is the phrase we used before, sort of escape from themselves until that became themselves and they didn't actually know how to get back to who they actually were anymore. And I don't know how we got off on this, but, you know, th- this gets to my problem with drug legalization is that if you want to make a cost-benefit analysis that the society would be worse off, is worse off doing it this way than we would be if we just legalized everything, that's fine as long as you honestly tell me that you understand what the costs would be. Oh, there, there's no question there would be more addiction. There, there's yeah, no question. How, however, I and this is empirical, but we'll no. never we'll never do the experiment. I suspect it would be you can't you could not extrapolate from what it is now, and that's because we have a situation now where there are a lot of people. These are the you know the dogs that don't bark who don't even go there. They just feel like I don't want to risk. I don't want to risk it because it's illegal and I can't afford the reputation. And those are people who I would suspect a fair percentage of those people would be able to handle their – a lot of them probably could handle their drugs. Mm -hmm. I mean we don't read about this and certainly doctors don't treat the people who use some of these very dangerous drugs in a controlled way. Now, I'm not (laughs) – I'm not advocating such a thing. It's just it's just a fact. And we labor under what's called the clinician's illusion, which mm-hmm. is to say we think that the people we treat are representative of people with this situation. Right. That's why we think PTSD is so awful because pe- we see people who have some of the worst cases of it. Right. But there are people with PTSD all the time and they t- usually, typically resolve on, on, on its own. So we don't – so the people who are not using now – might be able to control their drug use, and if they couldn't, pull back or have the cushions uh, to help them e- extricate themselves. But that's also – that's a social capital question, right? I mean uh, – it, It's also a, a – uh, I was calling it – what's the right word to use? I, I'd say a, a certain kind of um, – well, they wouldn't have many of those vulnerabilities to right. use. I mean to, to getting in trouble because they wouldn't have all that psychic pain. So – but I still – there's no question you would see more addiction – and the reason people often uh, want to legalize, of course, is to mitigate, you know, the excesses of, of the punitive mm-hmm. response. Well, we can do that. Right. And that's why I say I'm not interested in legalizing and I'm not being uh, coy when I say we did that with those pill mills. I mean, in some ways, that was an incredible natural experiment that yeah. should make anybody think twice if they talk about legalization. And we can work. It, it, we also have to build up treatment infrastructure. No question about that. But since many of these folks are going to end up in the criminal justice system, use that in a benign way towards advantage as much as we can. Yeah. No, it's funny you bring this up because um, about Fifteen years ago, I was giving a speech at some top 50, top 25 liberal arts college. And this was when I was still young enough where it didn't seem wildly inappropriate for me to go have beers with the students afterwards, right? So I'm, have, I'm having beers in some fraternity house or something like that. And we're just all talking about politics, whatever. And one kid says, they offer him a beer. And he says, no, I don't, I don't drink. And there was just something about the way he said it. I, I, to this day, I feel guilty about how I cross-examined him. But... I was like, just out of curiosity, why don't you drink? And uh, I was like, I just don't want to. And, and I said, that's fine. You know, I was like, but just out of curiosity, you know, like, is it a religious thing? And he goes, no, that's not religious. I was like, is it like a family thing? No, no, no. I was like, Do you have like some important test tomorrow? And, no. and finally, he just said, look, I don't, because I'm not 21 yet and it's illegal. 
and from the milieu I am from, <laughs> that was much weirder than him saying I'm a Christian Scientologist or something like that, you know, or sci- Christian scientist, I should say. A Christian Scientologist would be an oxymoron, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, and since then, I've now met dozens of college kids. That's a normal thing. For me, there were kids from my social set who said they wouldn't smoke pot because it was illegal, right? And that was sort of the cultural valence of Bill Clinton saying, I smoked it, but I didn't inhale, trying to have it both ways. And so I could see that there would be these natural responses to legalization where just sort of culturally people would be like, that's just not something I want to be part of. But mathematically, it's just inconceivable that there wouldn't be – you were consigning a statistically significant additional number of people to really terrible addiction if you just lower those barriers and make it easy to be – Yes, and and then we – and of course it would not be – technically not be accessible to kids, but – of course, they the would pill use mill thing it. made it accessible to kids for all the unintended consequences. Well, actually, kids they they don't think they had kids in there to be honest. No, but I'm talking about because you had this extra glut oh, market going into medicine cabinets sold. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. it's easier. It was easier for kids to get when there were more pills on the market. Oh yes, yes. It would be easier for kids to get if there was legal heroin on the market. Never well, mind if it's true. The Ramjack Corporation was running commercials during the Super Bowl about how much better their heroin was than some other companies. You know. Well, I kind of reminds me of the whole jewel situation. Yeah. And, uh, and Which I wanted to get vaping. to. Uh, full disclosure, he's often mentioned on this podcast, my old friend Tevi Troy, who we both know, mm-hmm. uh, works for Jewel, the vaping company. And I want, and, and I want to have him on. He, he doesn't want to talk about it right now. But we're both sort of pro-vaping, you and I, right? I mean, oh, if you're a smoker, you must vape. Yeah. Right and, now, go to a vape shop. And, I, and so like Tevi, when he was thinking about taking this job, because Tevi's a pointy-headed intellectual and all these things. And he was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go work for a private a private sector. And I said, look, I think vaping is great. I mean, I'm not saying it's great for everybody, but it saved my mom's life. My mom, she had a dalliance with cigarettes for, I think, it was 56 years. She went from, like, from 16 to like 70-something. <laughs> and she tried to quit every few years, couldn't do it. And then vaping was this thing. It just it fit. It fixed that part of her brain that needed that nicotine hit, hit like after a meal or whatever it was and made her not need a cigarette. And that to me is a great thing. But the war on vaping strikes me as so counterintuitive. Every, everywhere else that we talk about these things, we talk about harm reduction, clean needles, you know, free condoms, all of these things. But in this, it's like aesthetically it's displeasing to some people because it looks like smoking and therefore we must get rid of it. Where do you – I mean – Oh, I'm one of the biggest. I mean, I think vaping is the. I, I'm almost exaggerating, but not quite. Probably one of the greatest public health advances since penicillin. Yeah. I mean, if you're a smoker, yeah. It's um, if you if you can't uh, quit putting anything in your lungs, then put propylene glycol, water vapor, flavoring, and um, nicotine. Yeah. You know, um, nicotine itself is, I mean, there's, there's been many polls on, um, whether people, what people think of nicotine. It is not, it is not a carcinogen. Mm-hmm. Even some doctors think it is. Now, there is some literature that says if you, uh, if you already have lung cancer, that nicotine may increase what's called angiogenesis. In other words, the infiltration of blood. Um, vessels in that tumor, and that might ex- accelerate the spread of it. But even then, th- even that, those data are um, 
uh, not overwhelmingly clear, but certainly uh, they're not going to – nicotine does not initiate cancer. not a carcinogen. Mm -hmm. Of course, the tar and the gases that you get from combusted tobacco is what's so dangerous. And uh, and and we don't you don't have them with uh, vaping now. Will vape serious vapors not maybe have some sort of lung complication in ten or twenty? It's possible, and certainly we we have to follow it. But we know for a fact that they're endangering their health so much more if they if they continue to smoke. So um, again, if you need nicotine and and uh, are not don't find patches and gums you know sufficient then you must vape. I believe they should be subsidized by insurance companies. I think the VA should give them out for free. Um, basically, we should do what the UK does. I, yeah. mean, uh, in, I mean, this is a contrast in – it's really striking how mature, how ad- advanced, how non-hysterical – they are in the UK. I should say, I really should say London because I think Wales is a little <laughs> not <laughs> quite there as far as uh, uh, advanced. This, this as far podcast as is where you go for solid Welsh bashing. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, where they're the net, they're, their equivalent of the CDC uh-huh. is uh, uh, promotes it. They have reliable data. Yeah, well, but we so, have but, a problem. But, but the funny thing, because I, I, I've looked at some of that stuff. I, I, the fascinating thing about that is the reason why the Brits are so pro-vaping is because of socialized medicine because they know how much more expensive it is as a public health proposition to take care of a society that smokes tobacco versus a society that vapes. And it's funny how you would think insurance companies in the United States, which are, have the same sort of actuarial considerations yeah, – would be lobbying more or at least weighing in on the vaping thing, but I don't hear that. No, you would, and I haven't heard it either. There's that, that's that's um, uh, that's an important observation. And another, though, is that uh, England has a long tradition of harm reduction. They were prescribing heroin a long time ago, and there probably are still three people left who still get a heroin prescription. But they are very comfortable with this notion that people will do risky things. And so let's let's make it less less risky for them. Also, it's a smaller, obviously, it's a smaller country. Back in the seventies, they've they've had some especially enlightened physicians and, and public health experts who who saw the wisdom in this idea that people smoke for the nick. I'm not making this up. This is one of the quotations from Michael Russell, one of the more esteemed. Doctors, people smoke for the nicotine but die from the the tar. Mm-hmm. And you know how academic careers go. You're the professor, and then you have your progeny, and then they have theirs. And because it's a smaller academic um, constellation uh, universe, most of the so many of the progenies. Of over and over the years are from this one source, mm-hmm. or from or from a handful of really enlightened docs, yeah. and so that that kind of culture, that sort of mentality, gets perpetuated, and and so it was um, there was no revolution there in terms of of an enlightenment, and you know we should we should really think about balancing risks and be proportionate in, in what we consider, you know, harm we know is definite tomorrow if you keep using drugs versus perspective possible complications from this this new device they were very clear-eyed about it and uh, but here there's so much confusion there's so much uh, so enormous distortion and 
what fright what I find it's so disturbing is that it's often from public health advocates, mm-hmm. people who have to know better, and and much of it is because nicotine and tobacco have been so they understandably they've been linked. I mean until. There weren't cigarettes. They've always been linked. Right. So, th- so there's that. It's hard to. I think it's hard for many, even though they have PhDs, and I don't know why, but it seems hard for them to break that link. Then there's the simple. In some ways, I understand why they call them e-cigarettes because they were supposed to appeal to smokers. Right. But they should have realized if we may appeal to smokers, but who are we going to scare with that name? And they scared so many of the public health people because it had the word cigarette. Yeah. And I wish they came had another name from the start. Yeah. I don't even think it should be, I think it should be a consumer product, not an FDA product. I mean, this is all stuff that's clearly under the bridge. Yeah. And it's happened. But... I have no problem banning it in high schools. Oh, of course, of course. Those kids shouldn't without be... Without question, yeah. ...smoking. Uh, you know. Unless they smoke. Unless you have a right. kid who and smokes. you prescribe but, it for a kid. Yes, you, you know. should be able to prescribe And I understand why it's... Because nicotine's a great drug. I mean, I mean, I smoke cigars and nicotine is great. It doesn't... It doesn't goof you up. It doesn't, you know... It, it, it may it sharpen you. Yeah. yeah, and... So actually, that raises a question. I, I've been wanting to do a all-cigar podcast for a while and I... Every now and then I dip my toe into the public policy issues about cigars and I get so horrified I run away just by the complications of it and the weirdness of it and the weirdness of the people in it and all the rest. But I've met a couple people who are convinced I am not subscribing to this. I'm just raising questions, sort of like QAnon. Uh, There are people who are really convinced that one of the reasons why the pharmaceutical industry has sort of, with a wink and a nod, lent a strong push against the tobacco industry, and including premium cigars, is that middle-aged men are self-medicating with nicotine instead of using prescription drugs for their depression or their lo- loss of cognitive ability and all of the rest, and that really it's just a fight against the competition. Is that an actual idea that serious people talk about? Well, the analogy that some serious people have talked about is that the the pharmaceutical makers of gum and patch mm-hmm. were undermining e-cigarettes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and even there, it may have been inferential, but um, I, I respect some people who've who've had that uh, um, that thought. <clears throat> there is a, I, I, I tell you, I feel I really feel sorry for the average person who opens a newspaper and tries to get some truth on this issue. Yeah. It's very hard. There's so much mis- misrepresentation. And um, uh, in fact, again, uh, you can list this. Um, there are two good resources I, I could mention for people who really who want to read. Two, one's a physician. Another is an incredibly sophisticated gentleman. I think he has an economic background and was head of their anti-smoking charity, uh, uh-huh. Clive Bates in, in the UK. They have brilliant blogs. And what's so good about those blogs is, A, they're very readable. Um, they're not for professionals. And they dismantle. I mean, in fact, I feel very, very honored to be part of a, a group of uh, public health folks and, uh, and MDs who are statistical ninjas. So every time a paper comes out, they they absolutely take it apart, put it back together. They try to get more data sometimes from the authors. And unfortunately, there's a lack of collegiality in this field. Yeah. You're supposed to really take this seriously when a colleague asks in good faith for for some data. But but they they recreate tables. They look at things that haven't been looked at with the data that exist. And to this date, I would say that 
every paper that has come out and concluded that there's a gateway effect. In other words, had you not vaped, you would not be – you, you teen, mm-hmm. would not be smoking. Every one of them falls apart under the scrutiny of these folks. Yeah. Intuitively, that makes just total sense to me because smoking – and I say this as someone who smoked cigars but didn't like them for a long time and my gateway into cigars was pipes. But um, – and it was re- it's basically book writing because I just needed the nicotine. But um, smoking's gross, right? Just on the merits. You know, it makes your fingers stink and you know, it messes with your teeth and you have to fight all that. And so if, you, if your taste buds were formed from vaping, the idea that you would switch to smoking just seems really counterintuitive. It's like to going me. from a fine wine to, to rot gut. Yeah. Rot, rot gut, you know? Right. No, exactly. It's like uh, – um, it would seem a barbaric if you if you spent all your life eating cooked food the idea of eating raw food just seems weird right and but anyway we yeah. we at some point i want to do i i, I want to get Tevi on here he doesn't he's got all sorts of things to be concerned about but mostly i want him on because he works for a place called Jewel and i just want to make all sorts of like really bad ghostbuster puns about Zool but that's a different story anyway so do you think just to close this out because we've gone for a while now how optimistic are you? I mean, I know you haven't. You're you're studying this because you're an actual scholar and academic, and you violate all the rules of punditry. Is that you only form your conclusions after looking at the facts? But um, how optimistic, pessimistic are you about the opioid crisis? I might say I'm a little optimistic about the opioid crisis, uh, and I emphasize that insofar as we know that. There are fewer people are initiating heroin use uh-huh. and opioid use in Ohio, which where I am now. Death rates are going down nationally; they're still going up. But right. uh, and in, in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, where they have an especially robust infra- treatment infrastructure, they're going down. But methamphetamine is coming in behind it now. Mm-hmm. Unless they contaminate that too much with fentanyl, you're probably not as the overdose rates will probably go down, but that's a more frightening drug in some ways because, you know, heroin will calms you down. Granted, when you go into withdrawal, you can get pretty feisty, and that's right. where the crime often would come in. But, but um, methanol turns you into Florida man, right? I mean, it makes you, you know, do crazy weird. Oh, method, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Me- what do I say? Meth. Methamphetamine. Meth. Yeah, yeah, stimulants. And methamphetamine is shorter acting than um, – oh, excuse me, excuse me. It's longer acting than cocaine. Um, but um, but it's I – sus- I believe it's neurotoxic. I mean I, I, I really – I'm waiting for this generation of people who used a lot of methamphetamine in the 90s to start developing Parkinson's, that it mm. really eats at your – the dopamine-rich area in your brain, the – Maybe I'm wrong, but we'll see. But the point is that is uh, a quite neurotoxic. To be fair, though, m- much of the methamphetamine problem we had in the, in the 90s and, and up to the mid-2000s and in parts of the country was because this was made in your trailer, in your backyard, right. where you started a Superfund site, and God knows, who was, God knows what was in it. So some of that neurological damage could have been from that as well. Now the methamphetamine is breaking bad good and it's mm-hmm. coming from 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 Mexico. So, uh, but just, you asked about my enthusiasm? Yeah, but before, yeah. just a, a question. You mentioned this a couple times about people are switching from opioids to meth. If you're going through withdrawal for opioids, for an opiate, 
meth doesn't fix that, right? Yeah, and actually some people use it for that reason too. Um, it, like it distracts you and it energizes you. Uh-huh. But, and um, yeah, some people actually do that. That's also what speedballing is about uh-huh. or, or I guess it's goofballing when it's a – it's a speedball when it's heroin and cocaine. I think people call it a goofball if it's methamphetamine and heroin. Uh, they um, – both drugs sort of um, sand off the worst of the other. Okay. So you don't get – you won't get that paranoid if you're taking the methamphetamine, which is where the crime comes from and the aggression right. and the paranoia. And, the, you know, Hitler spent um, – during the war, he was strung out all the time. There's a wonderful book um, called – I want to say it's called Blitzed um, <laughs> by Norman Oler. And uh, it's he he uh, managed to get into an archive that that since been closed, and the the many of not just Hitler, many of his others, but uh-huh. um, associates, and he, were um, were going back and forth between basically um, oxycodone. I think they called it eucodol then. I mean there and um, and pervitin, which was a. Uh, which was a stimulant. Huh. Oh, my gosh. It was... Um... Jack Butler to the rescue? Yeah. Buzz. I can't read. Oh, okay. Buzz. Yeah, it's called Buzz. Drugs in the Third Reich by Norman Oler. Yes. Okay. Uh, it has a different name in the UK, but... Uh, oh, no, sorry. It. No, no. I'm, I'm misreading it because it's it's weird. It it It's blitzed. I, you were right. I apologize. It's, it's blitzed. Why did I say buzz? Because... It's fuzzy there for some, or maybe I'm just high. I don't know. Anyway, it's blitzed. I apologize. Um, but where did I go with? Where was I with that? Well, anyway, that's a very, very bad drug. Crime will almost surely go up with that. Yeah. And um, and I'm very, very worried about. I um, mean, in the old days, almost you want to say the good old days, when like why did crack start to go away? It's because it, 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 there are always several factors, but one of them was because it it suffered such reputational damage. You had yeah. a whole generation to learn this is what it does. And there are a number of rap songs that are about the horrors of, yeah. of crack. And if there's kind of nothing else to turn to, some people get their life together. Sure, other people maybe drink more. Other people are just more depressed. Right. Um, but they're not using more drugs. But now with these synthetics that can come in in the dark, on the dark web, yeah. and that uh, where they're changing the molecules every five minutes so that the DEA can't um, schedule them. I don't know where this is going to go. You yeah. really have to hope. I mean, I'm all for interdiction as well, uh, but remember that's how we pushed people to something even more dangerous. Right. So, um, so I think that we really have to deal with the demand side, which is if you're already addicted treatment so that can reduce the demand and if you're not already addicted lives that are less miserable and that's a very hard project yeah Sally thank you very much for doing this hope to have you back we can do a whole episode on vaping at some point and um, thanks very much and look forward to your conclusions from your great Appalachian adventure thank you thanks for having me (laughs) sure my pleasure all right so Sally has left the building Sorry, I just was wanting to make, give room because apparently there's a now another cult fascination with the sound effect of of, of people leaving the building. You did um, so. This, uh, dear listener, will just explain this. This this episode is being recorded basically in, in a null entropy tube of uh, we don't know where in space and time this will appear in the pipeline of remnant podcasts because this is one of the ones we're putting in the can before I leave town for a while. But um, 
the the last podcast we recorded in this timeline was the one with Tim Carney, and uh, I'm just seeing on Twitter that everyone was marveling at the new the guest has left the studio sound that you used. Someone was saying how it scared them. What what did you? No, do? no, that was not the that that was something. That was the effect that I applied to my voice when I the reason I in that episode that I said no you won't this is a podcast in the normal in a in a normal way is so that I could then just experiment with sound effects to see what the one that sounded the coolest was and uh-huh. I, I found one that just stretched the audio to like ridiculous proportions and made it all weird and ethereal like uh-huh. I was shouting into like an echo in space even though i know space doesn't echo i know don't Uh, correct me astronomers (laughs) um but did you know uh i don't know if i actually don't know if you look at the morning dog videos that i post or i do actually um many of them sometimes they're of intimidating length yeah i understand for for Uh, that content um but uh recently i did one where i shot my English Springer Spaniel Pippa jumping and doing her throw the ball, throw the ball, throw the ball act in slow motion. Yeah. And the audio for that is really, really, really creepy. Uh-huh. Um, what did you think of the conversation? Uh, so I – it is something I'm – this is a topic – not the vaping stuff. I don't care about what you what you smokers do to your lungs. <laughs> um, uh, the The opioid stuff is very – I've become very interested in it for many reasons, partly because I just did not know. I mean, I I was, grew up in apparently basically the epicenter of this entire crisis. Yeah. Especially if you Plays read – <laughs> Especially if you read the uh, account uh, Dreamland by Sam Quinones. Yeah. Uh, according to his account, the basically the – uh, epidemic of the or the epicenter of the heroin epidemic is in Columbus, Ohio, and the and the epicenter of the opioid epidemic is in Portsmouth, Ohio, and those are both like one is two hours north of me, the other is two hours east of me. Nice. <laughs> so, but I, I grew up like in total lack of awareness of this. I, I thought meth was the big problem, but apparently all this was happening without my noticing. I just yeah. sort of belatedly caught up to n- noticing this any of this was happening at all. And uh, I've just been trying to learn as much about it as I can, and her work has been helpful in that. And so I'm glad that we were finally able to have her on. Yeah, I mean, um, the middle part, there was some stuff that I, like, I think we got pretty. We sat us, we checked the box on our our, our uh, wonk quotient on some of it, but I uh-huh. thought it was all interesting. And uh, I'm a big fan of Sally's. She's actually one of these people that knows a lot about an aspect of life that is usually demagogued one from one side or the other. Mm-hmm. You know? But uh, yeah, it's just very, I mean, she mentioned, she called him a donor. The person that she was talking about is a very good friend of mine um, who, whose son died from fentanyl. And it's stuff like that that just, I mean, I'm, I'm glad Sally is where she is on the drug legalization stuff. I am very open to this idea of concentrating on treatment more and, you know, the idea that – although I think that there is a lot of myth-making out there that there are a lot of people who are ever in prison for long stretches of time simply for using drugs. That is um, – I'm not saying it never happened. But one of the things that, you know, makes it look like it's much more common if you ever talk to prosecutors is that – What are you talking to prosecutors about? 
Uh, in this instance, I'm talking <laughs> about former prosecutors like my friend Andy McCarthy. Um, the reason why there are so many allegedly nonviolent drug offenders in prison or were so many nonviolent drug offenders in prison is because that is the charge that they pled down to. It is not the charge that they were actually truly guilty of. There aren't a lot of nonviolent drug dealers out there when push comes to shove. And so anyway, my only point is that there's a lot of there are a lot of statistical games game playing when it comes to trying to inflate the victims of the drug war in terms of, you know, people being thrown into the prison industrial complex. But to the extent that it happens, I certainly don't think that, you know, uh, the best place for drug addicts is to go to a place where they can buy drugs. Um, and uh, the drug treatment stuff, you know, I think is really important. Having witnessed the stuff I have witnessed with friends and with my own brother, um, it's hard. It's really hard. And there are – and so what I like about the way Sally talks about it is that she at least recognizes that there are no easy solutions regardless of which side you come down on. Well, what you said about there aren't many – there not being that many – Nonviolent drug dealers reminds me of something I joke about a lot when you see very dark joke. Uh, you see headlines in the paper about drug deals gone wrong or drug deals gone bad. You know they never mention all the drug deals that happen every day that just go go well. <laughs> no one talks about those drug deals. Um, it's always a drug deal gone bad. <laughs> um, you just reminded me about the dark joke. I. I was my daughter wanted to catch up on the um, Oscar movies for the Academy Awards. I'm sorry to hear that. And uh, <laughs> so, looking through the options, I agreed to watch the Black Klansman. Oh, I was actually interested in that movie. I thought that. The, Did you see it? No, okay. I, I was. I, I thought about going to it because I think the story is, is just wild. The story's great. Uh, uh, it reminds me. It's like a serious, but also still kind of comical version of the scene in Blazing Saddles where. Um, the sheriff wears the the clan outfit, uh-huh. and uh, then Gene Wilder says that he needs to wash his hands more. And then, and now for my next impression, Jesse Owens. Um, <laughs> yeah, but also, the thing that that uh, the black sheriff says to get the Klansmen to. Oh, he, hey, where are the white women at? Yeah. <laughs> um, Gosh, that that movie is so uh, hilariously uh, offensive. Well, that's in great, the best possible way. It was Pod who pointed out to me that that when Mel Brooks, whenever people say to Mel Brooks, "You couldn't make that movie today," Mel Brooks says, "You couldn't make that movie then." Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, and he he was some of the things he wrote in the movie. Like he kept having to ask Richard Pryor, like, is not so, Richard Pryor. No, it was Richard Pryor ended up writing the movie, but not being cast in. Is it. that right? Yeah, because he was unreliable because of drug addiction. So yeah. the, the the studio wouldn't let him be cast, so he suggested Cleavon Little, who ultimately was cast as the sheriff. But but Richard Pryor was in the writing room. Okay, but he he doesn't have the sole writing credit. No, but he was one of the writers. But he was okay, the one. I didn't realize that. That's interesting. Yeah, he was one of the he was the writer they would turn to when they were like doing these things and be like, uh, is this is this okay? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Let's <laughs> do it. Um. Anyway, so we were watching. I there were parts of it I really. I was fine. I enjoyed whatever. The story is great. At the end of the day, I hated Black Klansman. Spike Lee, I think, can be a great director, but he can be so self-indulgent. He can't resist going certain places. And I think everyone who listens to this podcast knows that I'm not exactly a huge Trump booster. But he managed to make it like just pure agitprop at times against Donald Trump, trying to make 
America First, a famous racist clan phrase and bent dialogue horribly to get in phrases about American greatness and making America great again. And, and this is something that's set in Colorado Springs in 1979. And, and just all of the – I mean my daughter's heard enough of this stuff now that it, it still bothers me. But all the N-words and all the F-bombs, I mean just constant. Um, but anyway, at one point during it, I swear this wasn't intentional – my my daughter turns to us and says, "Is this supposed to be a comedy?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, it's a it's a dark comedy." Right when like there are all these like black power guys on the screen, you know, at like a Stokely Carmichael thing. And my wife looks at me and is like, "Like I made this horribly racist joke." <laughs> and I was like, first of all, it's, it's actually totally unintentional, but actually just kind of a funny joke. But uh, I didn't mean it as a sort of like referring to black people. I just it, it is a dark comedy, but. uh Oh, it's, it, it was infuriatingly manipulative and it made me actually want to read the book that it's based on because the guy who's – Yeah, the book sounds like it would be – this is the place to go for this story then. Yeah, it does because the idea that Colorado Springs was this hotbed of racism – I'm not saying – like apparently this guy was the first black cop on the force and apparently the, he did have this interaction with these Klan folks and this – what, but like 1979, the idea that uh, this kind of like just rampant institutional racism of the Klanish variety, um, I just find hard to believe was the case. And also – I also don't believe that like the the black student union or whatever it was at the Colorado – Colorado Springs Community College was in 1979 was full of sort of leather trench coat black panther sympathizing. Um, Is that an important call? No. Uh, they made it se- it just seemed very ahistorical. And I understand that Spike Lee was doing it for campy, kind of ironic, funny reasons. But when you throw in all the political sermonizing into it, it makes it a problem. And um, anyway, I, I did not love it. All right. So anyway, um, I think we've, since we can't talk about anything in the news, we recorded this while Michael Cohen was just heaping esteem and glory and, and praise on our president um, and his his Senate testimony, our House testimony. Can't really talk about that because it'll be really old news by the time this comes out. So we should probably just wrap this up because we went pretty long anyway. Yeah. You agree? Uh, no, I agree with that. We should wrap it up. <laughs> I, I, I'm not. No, no. They, you had an you had an expert on talking about an important topic. That's yeah, fine. So let's do that. Um, so anyway, thanks for all the reviews. Thanks for following us, and um, I'll see you next time. No, you want this is a podcast. <laughs>